Did you know Montel uses artificial intelligence and machine learning to forecast spot prices, inflow to reservoirs, wind and runoff river production? We can improve forecasts for your individual power plants anywhere in Europe. Contact us at ai.motelnews.com for more info. Hello listeners and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast, bringing you energy matters in an informal setting. This week we'll be talking about the carb market. What's driving prices in the EU ETS at the moment? What's the direction for prices this year? And how could a green recovery in the EU impact prices? And last but not least, what system does the UK plan to have in place for when it leaves the EU? My name is Richard Sverison. And for this week's episode, we are very fortunate to have two carbon market veterans. Firstly, Lewis Redshaw, who has a long career in energy trading and has been covering the ETS since its inception. He is the founder and CEO of Redshore Advisors, carbon market experts. Also joining us this week is my old pal, Alessandro Vitelli, who's been covering the market since the 1880s. A warm welcome to you both. Good morning. Good morning. I think we'd start off by talking about prices at the moment. What's currently driving the market in your view, Lewis? So we've got a number of factors conspiring at the moment. There are quite a number of bearish factors. We have uh, additional auctions this year from the UK that uh, wasn't able to auction EUAs last year. We've got additional EUAs being auctioned by the um, Innovation Fund. 50 million EU allowances are coming to market this year. Uh, we have the virus, of course, and that's impacting electricity demand as well as having impacted uh, factories earlier in the year and to less of a degree um, now. And we have um, continued growth in renewables capacity and we've got low gas prices. So uh, all in all, the ability for carbon to go higher should be muted. The flip side of that, though, of course, is the market stability reserve that sucked out a lot of volume. And we have had an interesting development in, in the last month, which was uh, uh, Galp Energy in Portugal uh, having to buy back, by our calculation, at least 10 million EU allowances due to some what they term uh, rogue trading. And we've also got the situation at the moment with August having halved uh, levels of auctions, which is a familiar feature to those trading the EU, in the EU ETS, whereby the European Commission determined that because pretty much everybody goes on holiday in August, that the market doesn't need as many EU allowances in the auctions in August. Uh, so they just halved the volumes arbitrarily. And what that has caused in pretty much every year since they've done that uh, is for prices to go up in August. And that was every year except last year. So it's a bit of a, a toss of a coin this year. Would you concur with that, Alessandro? Uh, have we found a sort of uh, range at the moment between sort of 26, 25 euros? Yeah, I mean, for the last two, what, two or three weeks, the market's been sideways effectively between anywhere between 25 and 27.50. We're drifting a little bit the past couple of days. There's been some bearish tendency. I'm thinking that we are at the height of the holiday season, perhaps this week, and that uh, activity is going to find its lowest ebb this week. After this, people will start drifting back. There'll be some anticipation of what happens when everything resumes in September, when normal activity resumes next month. And when we get the, the, the new auction volumes coming into the markets, adjusted by the MSR, 
which itself is based on the TNAC from last year. Mm. What's the outlook for the rest of the year, do you say, Alison? What are going to be the key drivers? I think the main thing hanging over everything is whether or not we get a real second wave of the pandemic and whether that has a real impact on um, economic activity and lockdowns. That's the real, I think, crux for the rest of the year. I think in in terms of market sentiment, we've already shown with the rally that we uh, went through after the big drop in March, that the market has the ability to look further forward and to adjust prices on the basis of that. Uh, They're looking at the Green Deal. They're looking at uh, the 2030 um, adjustment of the target. They're looking at the operation of the MSR. And that's what took us back to where we were before the COVID sell-off. Therefore, I would expect that to be a continued factor. What will change will be the attitude of speculative players based on the impact of a possible second wave. And then people are going to start thinking about verified emissions for the whole of 2020, which aren't looking particularly bright, as we know. So you may, you may see, I think, some weakness in the second half of the year as people look at the practical, fundamental demand-supply balance for 2020. We've talked a little bit, me and you, um, last week about sort of the gas price rally and the potential impact of of a reduction in nuclear availability. Are those going to be drivers at all? As far as I'm concerned, yes. But I think the the nuclear availability question was an issue maybe three, two or three months ago when it was first announced. It's being refined steadily with every new announcement that uh, EDF make about their shutdown schedule. But I think the market will have taken that into account. We have very strong uh, renewable supplies this year, as the data shows us. And I think the adjustments that, go, that we get going forward will be marginal, and therefore they won't have as big an impact on prices as they might have done before. Lewis, would you concur with Alessandro's view here that when we get into the autumn, you know, market participants will be looking more uh, to what's happening in the Green Deal and to maybe to 2030, which will drive price of the rest of the year, as well as you know, fundamental factors? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's a bit of a mixed bag at the moment. So I think the most significant point to highlight is the fact that the price today is higher than it was before COVID set in, as it were, in March. So the market corrected towards, you know, mid to, towards the end of March in quite a big way. Um, and that looks to me to have been something of a panic sell by uh, participants in the market. And then it recovered a whole lot more. And we hit a 13-year high, um, just short of €31 just a month and a half ago. So there's something quite weird going on. So I've I've mentioned the Gallup Energy um, buyback, but the thing we haven't talked about is the options market. And clearly, in my mind, there has been a lot of options, uh, delta hedging, that has created something of a positive feedback loop that has uh, caused the price to go higher and higher as um, those call option sellers have been buying back the underlying to hedge themselves. And the question then is, what uh, what do we get in the second half of this year? Well, as Alessandro points out, we've got more auctions. Uh, September is the highest auction month this year so far. The whole year we've had more auctions than we had last year. It's perhaps slightly confusing that the price is, um, is so high. But as we get towards the end of the year, those options buyers and those speculators that are trying to make a profit from a, a rise in prices, well, they're going to have to sell back the underlying so we've got a, a lot of moving parts. Then, of course, 2021, and it's a new, uh, a new game again. We have nuclear closures, the MSR starting to really bite, no additional UK auctions. In fact, the UK coming out of the 
EU ETS will cause the EU ETS to be a bit shorter than it was expected. So we've got a bit of a roller coaster coming up, and most analysts are pointing to higher prices next year. Okay, what and, and the rest of this year, Lewis? I mean, do you think we could return to the the thirty euro level? Hmm, that's a very good question. My bias is to the downside based on the fundamental. The thing that uh, surprised everyone else and us in the market just a couple of months ago was the strength of that rally. That is demonstrating there's additional buying interest. Could it all be you know rogue traders and, and a couple of people that have gone a bit too short because of COVID nineteen? Probably. But there is a lot of talk of interest from other parties in the carbon market, bearing in mind the EU ETS is perhaps one of the only sensible hedges that companies can make against higher carbon taxes and prices in the future at the moment. I mean, and and, and the EU ETS is very small, so you don't need a lot of interest from outside of the EU ETS, outside of Europe even, for that influence to be felt. Now, 26 euros, it's not a particularly compelling trade. But if you believe some of the forecasts for next year that are that 35, 40, some even higher, then it could explain some of the strength we've seen in recent months. You know, you would put it down to the options trading and also to potentially the Gaup Energy, you know, position here. That there's the main drivers behind the 30 euro spike rather than fundamental factors. Yes, I'd say so. I mean, we've got a quite a, a tightly balanced market at the moment because of the MSR. We tend to see, uh, so 10 million tons doesn't sound like a huge amount, but if it's 10 million tons the market wasn't uh, expecting, and depending on how quickly they bought that back, it's going to have tipped the market out of balance and it would have caused other people to take actions that they wouldn't ordinarily have taken. So it's sensitive to the large, larger size trades, shall we say. And Alessandro, is this, is this also what you're hearing in the market about this 30 euro spike in July? Yes, it was, I mean, a reaction is an opposite and equal reaction. And I think the, the huge uh, drop that we saw down to 1434 in, in, in March generated its own recovery, simply based on the fact that the market had, had dropped that far and had built up such a head of steam, downward steam, that it had to react. And it did. Whether or not the supply-demand balance justified 31 or 30 euros and 80 cents is another question, but it certainly had to react to that huge drop. I find it more interesting and more instructive, uh, as Lewis has previously mentioned, that the market is at or slightly above where it was before we went into the COVID pandemic period, and that we are now trading more or less where we, we started the year within um, you know, less, less than 2 or 3%. That's more important and more germane to this than, than anything else, I think. Where we go from here, you know, uh, I, I think we're now in an area that where, where there's lots more things to consider, pandemic-related, industrial output-related, and sentiment-related. I think we can, we, we can sort of put brackets around the period between March and July and say, okay, we, we, we've got done that. Let's just look at the market as, as a continuum now from the beginning to the end of the year. I mean, Lewis, you mentioned hedging. We've seen some of the reports, financial reports coming from utilities, reflecting H1 numbers, Q2 numbers. What are you seeing in terms of their hedging numbers? And is there any discernible change in trend or is it pretty much business as usual? There's limited uh, data released so far. We're expecting that um, in the coming week or so. But there are a couple of companies that have released results. So NL being perhaps the most significant of those, NL being the owner of Spain's Endesa as well. And the reports coming from them indicate they've actually accelerated their hedging program and that they've bought more than they would have ordinarily for the time of year. Now, that is possibly 
triggered by the uh, the drop that we saw in March. It could be based on you know uh, the, the higher forecasts we're expecting next year. We don't know exactly because they don't reveal that kind of information. But what it does tell us is that consequence of that is that demand from that company, in this case, will be lower as time goes on because they won't need to buy the stuff they've already bought. We can, If we extended that to all utilities, um, then that becomes significant for the carbon market. Uh, but at this stage, it's probably a little bit early to be able to make any kind of prediction about the impact of um the impact of this uh, change in, in a small change in hedging strategy. We'll keep our eyes peeled there. Alessandro, you mentioned the Green Deal and also the potential 2030 targets as a driver going forward. I mean, if you have increased ambition in an EU recovery in terms of renewables expansion, wouldn't that in turn then reduce demand for, for EUAs? It would. I mean, on the surface of it, of course, there's still the fact that people will need backup from some other kind of technology, namely gas in most cases. So there will still be some demand. The only problem is how much and and when does it kick in? We also have to consider when coal plants are going to be phased out because uh, we're still feeling our way through the the, the schedule going through to uh, 2038. And we heard uh, some noises from Poland in the past couple of weeks mentioning 2050 or even 2060 as a date when they would leave coal. So we need we need to kind of factor in the exit dates that are being talked about in various capitals. We also need to factor in, of course, what they do with the surplus of, un, of no longer needed EU allowances, because that still hasn't been... Uh, dealt with by many countries. In fact, Germany is the only one, as far as I'm aware, that has actually got uh, any kind of plan to deal with unneeded EUAs once coal plants close down. That also, and I, I will keep coming back to this, that is a huge sort of Damocles that hangs over this market. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you're coming into a cash strap situation uh, post pandemic or even in the middle of the pandemic, what are you going to do? Cancel millions worth, millions of euros worth of, of allowances. You know, you can see the pressures on governments here. Yeah. The other problem is, of course, is the European Union itself has actually said we're going to use revenue from some EUAs to help pay for the rebuilding efforts. And, and, and so you, you do have this. Uh, attachment to the revenue from EUAs, which doesn't necessarily uh, fit with the concept of actually cancelling EUAs uh, as they're no longer needed by coal plants. We've also got this increasing talk of price floors and potentially even price caps. And that's something that you probably wouldn't have heard a lot about while the UK was part of the EU, being a market as they are. But even the UK, and I know we're going to discuss this shortly, but even the UK is talking about a price floor. And in such a situation where lots of people are depending on the cash and companies are calling for certainty, the prospects of a price floor and cap have never been higher. I'm not suggesting that we'll definitely get them, but the increased levels of discussion of the subject do suggest that carbon may have a at least a floor underneath it in the not too distant future. That's interesting. I mean, France has always been one of the countries that's have urged such measures, but that would be quite a departure from the Commission, which has always stood back and said that's not the way we're going to run the carbon market with caps and floors. Lewis, I mean, uh, what's your view here? Yeah, no, absolutely. But I just think you know, with the UK uh, out of the EU, the dynamic changes. Uh, significantly. And the, and the EU has steadfastly stuck to its guns um, on this message. But I think that if we've had a price spike to 31 euros in a, in a year when there's been more supply and less demand, it does suggest that the market is becoming quite sensitive 
And if we saw very high prices, we'd have a call for a price cap. So the discussion isn't going to go away. Uh, and, and indeed, it appears to be just getting louder. Exactly what the European Commission will do is difficult to call. Uh, they they will have to respond to the to the politicians. So there's a there's a risk of a more interventionist commission, and potentially also based on the the noises coming from certain Eastern European states who have been quite hard hit by these high carbon prices. But what do you how do you view the green recovery? What kind of impact can that have on the market, Lewis? So really, the the green recovery doesn't have an awful lot to do with carbon prices at the moment. So what we are looking at is a target that was established before the virus hit, which was a 50 to 55% decrease in emissions by 2030. And that's a target increase from 40% that's, uh, that we currently have. And what that does is not really affect many people's interaction, many installations interaction with the EU ETS, because they just carry on business as usual. What it does impact is investors' interest in the carbon markets in Europe. Because with that type of target, you're getting a de facto price floor, because what we're saying here is that come what may, the EU ETS is going to be undersupplied, and therefore prices can be expected to be material. And we're not going to go back to five euros anytime soon. Um, So that gives uh, more comfort to longer term speculators. And indeed, companies that are looking to hedge exposure to, for example, um, fossil fuel heavy investment portfolios. The Green Deal means that we are more likely to get the 55% target, which sort of reinforces that potential flaw. The flip side, of course, is that uh, emissions drop because there's more investment in greener technologies. Both of you guys are based in the UK. and, And I think I'd like to talk a little bit about that now. You know, once the UK leaves the EU, what kind of system does it have in place? I mean, how does it a UK trading system? How does it stack up against the EU ETS in terms of ambition and liquidity, Lewis? If I can start with you. So the, the UK system is a carbon copy of the EU ETS in large part. There's a couple of tweaks to accommodate few uh, problems they're going to have trying to link the EU ETS, but ultimately the process of measuring emissions, the process of giving out free allocation, benchmarking the carbon credit itself is you know it's going to be a ton of carbon like every other so the similarities are enormous i mean the prospects for linking to the eu ets couldn't be higher and it looks to me that's a very conscious decision that the uk has decided to make their ets look so much like the eu ets that it'd be very difficult for the eu to object to a linked system alexander what are you are you seeing any sort of innovative elements here that could sort of influence other markets or the commission in terms of looking at uh, the ETS itself, EU ETS? Well, the, the talk of a price floor in the in the government plans for the UK ETS is interesting. It kind of suggests that there that there is a an acknowledgement in the UK that they do have to provide some sort of certainty, long-term certainty to the business sector. And it's the same, it's the same discussion that's actually going on in Europe at the moment. So there has been a shift in thinking on how to provide that certainty and it's happened across Europe and it's being implemented both in or it may be implemented both in Europe and in the UK. Uh, there's also a price ceiling, which is, you know, again, something that's it's been in the European market forever anyway. And they're also talking about ambition. I mean the UK cap is set at what it what the UK cap would have been under the EU ETS minus five percent, which is maybe an acknowledgement that the UK has been slightly over allocated 
throughout its membership of the EU ETS. It could also be trying to send a signal somehow to the rest of the world that we are still ambitious in the UK and there's still a, an intention to reach the Paris Agreement goals. The other things are more or less, as Lewis said, a carbon copy of the EU ETS, but there are some tweaks there that kind of say, kind of reflect the, the slight change in thinking that's going on among policymakers. Are there any compatibility issues here, Lewis? I mean, would the UK have to use the same rules and measures for free allocation uh, as the EU if it wants to, to, to pursue the, the link to the, to the ETS? Yeah, I mean, the temptation, of course, is to give a more generous free allocation to certain industries. But the intention, as we understand it at the moment, is to not do that and to, to completely copy the EU's system of free allocation, including the benchmarks. Exactly how they would achieve reliable figures for the benchmarks, they'd have to rely on the rest of the EU because there simply aren't enough examples of each industry in the UK to be able to do that. So the copying is um, is almost absolute. And that's intentional. Right? I mean, it's designed to allow the market to, to link. And the reason you'd want it to link to the EU ETS is to take advantage of the pool of liquidity that the EU ETS represents. The EU system is a relatively small market, um, and a UK system would be yet smaller, about one-tenth the size. And while I, I imagine there would be reasonable liquidity in a UK ETS, uh, it's going to be that much better if we combine the two together. The price floor, I think, is designed along with the uh, extra 5% um, target, so a 45% reduction instead of a 40% reduction by 2030. I think both of those are actually designed to keep the European Commission happy about linking in order to make sure linking happens by the 1st of January. And the reason I think that is because the UK is oversupplied compared to the demand that it has. And by taking away some of that oversupply and committing to not allowing the price to go below a certain level and therefore diluting the EU ETS, I think that's designed to, to increase the chances of linking. And just really briefly on the price ceiling that Alessandro referred to, it's not a strict price ceiling. It's actually the prospect of injecting additional volume into the market should the price go above a certain level. And they've made those rules slightly more relaxed than the EU's rules. But again, we, you know, we've done a little bit of basic modelling and the chances of that having a material impact and properly capping price are very, very slim, just like in the uh, EU's uh, plans. So there are some tweaks, but ultimately, I don't think they mean a great deal. And that linkage is inevitable if the will is there from both parties. It's interesting that the, the UK has now seen, has been coal-free for, for several weeks, uh, months even this year. And it may be interesting to see that other European countries follow the example of the carbon price floor as well. I mean, it could be interesting to see developments in, in countries which have that coal-fired generation. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining the Montel Weekly podcast this week. Uh, I feel we could, uh, we could talk for, for hours on these issues, you know, a very, very interesting discussion. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all for this week, uh, listeners. We return next week. Keep up to date with all the relevant energy market news on Montel Online and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. Also remember social media. We are active on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you and goodbye.